0: If you look on uh, the verse 41, just about the prayer, I think this is really interesting. It's on page 1020. It says, uh, Seest thou not that it is Allah who praises uh, all beings? Whose praise, whose praises all beings in the heavens? I, I have a problem with these kind of translations. I'm just going to do my own here. Haven't you seen that it is Allah that all beings are praising, from the birds in the heavens and the earth, uh, وَتَطِيرُ And even the birds in flying and everything knows its prayer, قَدَّ عَلِمَ صَلَاتَهُ. كُلٌّ قَدَّ عَلِمَ صَلَاتَهُ Every creature knows his prayer. And his praise so this is really interesting in the idea that every creature is in an act of worship and it knows how to do that the bird knows how it's supposed to praise right and so for the Muslims when they look at at creatures they really see that these creatures are all glorifying God and have a prayer that they're doing so you know the praying mantis has its prayer the cat has its prayer. I mean, you can see the cat in a state of meditation. You know, when it's there, just purring away. And, and doing, I mean, it goes into a, a really interesting state. And in fact, Zen Buddhists, you know, traditionally talk about the cat and its meditative state. It, you know, that you can learn Zen from a cat. If you want to learn how to do zen, you watch a cat. And then that... Uh, ...that the human being is somebody who does, does, does not by nature know his prayer... ...that the prayer is something that is taught. And this relates because the, the human being is a creature uh, that has intellect, that has consciousness... ...that it is not inspired uh, or there is not an intuitive... ...although many people will feel some type of uh, desire to pray and will pray... ...and many people even outside of traditions in this culture at some time in their life will attempt to pray... For the Muslim point of view, you know, there is a way of praying and that way involves the body. And there is an importance uh, of the idea of being in the body when one prays. Because the Muslims have always uh, really avoided a, a type of Cartesian dualism of mind-body. And we believe in the bodily resurrection. Although we do see that the soul is, is connected to the body and the soul does disengage from the body. And in fact, the Muslims believe, according to the Quran, that the soul even disengages during sleep. That there is a disengagement that takes place. But there is an idea that the body is also part, you know, that we should not deny our bodies. In fact, the body is part of our being and does represent a very important aspect of our nature. And so the prayer is a physical prayer as well as being a spiritual prayer. That the body itself is being used as an act of worship. And so there is a standing. And then there's a bowing. And then a return. And then a prostration. And each of the limbs is participating in that. In fact, the seven limbs. Hakim talked about that. The seven limbs. And then there's an idea of putting the forehead... Right? And the nose onto the ground, literally onto the ground. And the act of, of, of this, uh, there's a symbolic act which is elevating the heart over the intellect. That there is an idea that, that in the act of worship that we're, we are submitting the intellect and we are elevating the heart because the heart, according to the Muslims, is the organ of cognition, and what it is, what 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 it was created to do was to come to know God. It was to come to know God. So that this is just, I mean, this is something some of the scholars have mentioned. It's not really, uh, it's just a symbolic type of. And then. The uh, the prayer that I didn't mention here was the afternoon prayer at the point that the sun. Reaches a point where the shadow Will cast the like of a thing plus whatever the shadow at the meridian point was So most people if you measure your your height to your feet The vast majority of people what they call the you know two standard deviations Right 95% of people are going to come between six and a half to seven feet Of their height if you have normal foot size to your height so if you, if you literally uh, lie down and put a quarter at the tip of your head and something at your feet and then you go, you see and measure it and you go one, two, three, you'll find that your height will generally be about seven feet. And so for the Muslim, the traditional Muslims measured the sun with their body, which is again using the body as an act of worship because measuring the sun's shadow is considered an act of worship. It's part of remembrance of god and so you would go out if you knew for instance like right now for for me the the meridian the hor prayer is my my shadow is about two feet so i would add to that seven so when my shadow reaches nine feet asar time has come in this prayer so i go out at about five o'clock and i measure it and i'll find it's nine feet that means i can pray asar Right, so that's the, that, that is uh, the afternoon prayer so those are the five prayers the sunset the evening prayer which is called Isha the dawn prayer which is called Fajr which literally means dawn and then the uh, post meridian prayer which is called Dhuhr. so those are the prayers that's the first pillar What you will do... Or the second pillar, not including the shahada. What you will do is you will, five times a day, stop everything. In Muslim countries, traditionally, people left their shops. I mean, this is less so now because Muslims are being secularized uh, like everybody else. Um, But traditionally, and you can still find this in some countries... Muslims will leave their shops, oftentimes they didn't lock them, they would literally put drapes, because for somebody to steal while somebody was praying, even a thief had a sense of honor there, (laughs) right, that that was not a good thing to do. And it's interesting that traditionally many, many court cases were decided based on what's called a oath, where the judge would say, do you swear by God that you're telling the truth or lying? Many, many, historically, many court cases were solved because people were quite literally afraid of uh, bearing false witness or, or lying. In that, and they would say, I can't say that. And, and, and that would literally end the trial. Many, many cases like that historically. So traditionally, people did have a sense you know, that there were certain things. Even the thief had honor. Um, there's a famous story of Imam al-Ghazali, great theologian and, and scholar, uh, who studied in... He's from Thos in Persia and he'd studied uh, in uh, one of the great Persian cities and he had spent two years transcribing all these books by hand because these people, you know, there weren't printing presses. You wanted books, you had to write them out. He went to the library, spent two years doing that and on the way back, a, they were, their, their caravan was attacked by brigands and they were taking his books and al Ghazali begged this chief of the thieves don't, you can't take all my knowledge. And, he, and the thief laughed and he said, what kind of knowledge do you have when somebody like me can steal it? And Al-Ghazadi said that he realized that God had made him say that to, tell, to let him know and to remind him that true knowledge was not in books. Right. What's that? <laughs> yeah, that's it. What's that? Uh, the fifth prayer... Let's say you would have Maghrib, Isha, Fajr, Dhuhr, and Asr is the last prayer. Asr. And that means the afternoon prayer. Now... Just to let you know what, the Muslims are encouraged to congregate for the prayer, but they don't have to. It's very highly encouraged to congregate. Women can, can go to the mosque and congregate if they like or if they don't. It's, it's not uh, encouraged for them. Uh, the house is actually uh, where the women generally pray in most Muslim cultures. And I will just make mention of certain phenomena that you relate. Traditionally, there was no barrier between the men and the women praying. That is a later uh, innovation. It was not the tradition of the Prophet. The Prophet did not have a barrier between the men and the women. That came later. In many Muslim countries, you still do not have that barrier. For instance, African countries, North Africa, you do not have that barrier. In the Middle East, uh, in the Indo-Pac cultures, you will tend to find barriers. So, that is more of a cultural phenomenon. It is not a religious, it's not part of the religious tradition. Even this, what they call the masharabiyya in the mosque here, which is this uh, a latticed woodwork between the men and the women, that is not uh, traditional. That is, well, it's traditional in terms of Muslim culture, but it is not from the religion. The religion does not say that. That is something that people introduced as a cultural uh, phenomenon. So, and that's important to remember. And there are some countries. Uh, that, you know, I think a few where there's an extreme patriarchy there and, you know, women, it's really hard for them to pray in the mosque. And that, again, is a cultural phenomenon because the Prophet prohibited that. He said, do not prohibit women from going to the mosques. And it's a sound hadith. Um, I think probably on the Arabian Peninsula, you, you will find in some of the mosques in the villages... In Mecca and Medina, definitely not. There are women praying there. Mecca, you'll look here, the black uh, are generally the women. In the pictures, if you see of Mecca, the Kaaba, when you see big black groupings, those are generally the women, and the white are are the men, right? Because in that country, they they tend to wear black and white. Uh, The men wear white, the women wear black. In Algeria, the women wear white. Uh, So that, again, is a cultural thing. Of color in West Africa, where Dr. Nyang is from, women very They're like cockatoos. You know, they're very, very colorful. Um, lot of color in, in their uh, their hijab. And um, uh, Morocco, the, it's pretty much almost like a basic kind of unisex type. Uh, they they wear a jalaba. And the differences would be in the colors, but the actual uh, Jalaba is very similar. The women wear the same dress as the men do, um, except the colors uh, distinguish. So uh-huh. The communities that do this gender separation, do they think of it and explain it as being Islam? I think, they, I think mostly they John do. I, I think most of them do. You know, and you get... You know, but, I mean, patriarchy is a phenomenon yeah. worldwide. And, and we're as uh, we are as susceptible to it as any other culture. I think there's been a lot of artificial mechanisms at trying to break it down, but nonetheless, the, you know, there's still a lot of remnants. I'll give you some examples. In in Muslim law, and Rukai is going to talk about this, but in Muslim law, a a, a woman uh, does not have to uh, serve her husband in her house, and she cannot be forced to. If she refuses to cook, the man has to. Provide somebody who will cook, or he has to cook himself. She is highly encouraged to do that, but it is literally within the Islamic law that she has a right to say, "I don't want to cook." Right? It's in. It's based on the hadith and based on uh, uh, the scholar's interpretation. But this is literally 1,400 years ago when this was. These judgments were being pronounced. Um, you know that women. The money is theirs. If a woman earns money, she can actually go to a. Qa- if the husband takes the money from her, she has a right to go to a qadi, and because uh, it's it's a crime, it's not his money. Any money that comes into hers is hers. Whereas the money that the man earns, a portion of it has to go to the woman, by 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 law. So there, it's very interesting. You know, I think that uh, you know the phenomenon of of uh, the abuse of of certain characteristics that the man, certainly physical, which is changing in this country, but generally in most societies, men tend to be physically stronger and have been able to coerce uh, women physically to do things. And there's a very interesting verse in the Quran, uh, which is about Asya, the wife of Pharaoh, when she says, Oh God, save me from my husband, the tyrant. And I just find that's really fascinating that that's a dua. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a prayer in the Quran from a woman about her husband who's a tyrant being asked to be saved from him. And I just wonder historically, you know, how many women that that has been a type of, you know, sustenance for that type. You know, in this culture as well. I mean, we, have, we still have very serious problems with domestic violence. We've been, and we tend to really look at the, the public space and not so much, we forget about the private space, about, uh, you know, a lot of mental cruelty, a lot, it's all still going on. Um, but there's a type of openness that has emerged in the culture where these things, you know, people can talk about them. Mauritania, where uh, Sheikh Abdullah is from, uh, you know, we are talking about this, about uh, domestic violence and things like that. And it's interesting that in Mauritania, it's impossible for a man to hit a woman. Is literally impossible. One, because of tribe. In other words, marital relationships are very, you know, they're very related to the family. And so for, for there to be any injustices towards the woman... It's going to affect very uh, heavily on relationships, inter-family relationships, and things like that. And the women generally tend to be very educated from his uh, group, particularly, and know their rights. and, and they're they're quite they're, they're strong women. There's also no polygamy in that culture at all, because the women put a condition in their marriage contracts. I don't want a second wife, and they know that's a right that they have. Right? They can stipulate that in a contract, and they do that. That's that the, is- absolutely. It's from again. It's it's from the scholars' understanding and interpretation. The, the, and the, the, there are early community instances where that was from the companions, where that was established. Did somebody ask a question? Who's yeah. mm-hmm. talking about the ablution? Ablution? The cleansing, I guess, about okay, good prayer. point about the prayer. There is a water cleansing, ablution. I hate that word. I no, I think well, I don't know where that comes from. Ablution ritual ablutions it's a, it's a Latin word but I just don't don't like it is it it's Catholic do you think is it? it's used in the Catholic church it is isn't it yeah I think that's where they got I just it's always bothered me that word I just don't like the way it sounds it's not like something bad ablution <laughs> brother do your ablutions right um, the, the, the 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 there is a water purification a ritual purification with water before you pray You should use a small amount of water. It's not meant to waste water. It's actually encouraged to use a small amount. And it's it's basically a washing of the face, the arms up to the elbows, a wiping of the head, not a washing, just a light wiping, and then a cleansing of the feet. And the idea is to enter into a ritual state. You know, I mean, all religious traditions have this idea of entering into a ritual state of purity before you go into the divine space. And that, that, that's the idea there. And, if there's, and the proof that it is ritual and not related to actual physical type, although it does have physical uh, qualities, is that, that you can use earth to do it in the absence of water. So you'd use the earth. The Prophet Muhammad said that the earth, was, the earth was given to my community as a place of worship, the entire earth, that we can worship anywhere on the earth, and as a purification that the earth is seen as a source of purification. And the Prophet Muhammad said in a, in a, a tradition related by uh, Tabarani, he said, um, beware of your mother, the earth, that you should transgress or oppress her because she will bear witness against all of those who, who have uh, transgressed against her. And there is an idea in the Islamic tradition literally the Prophet Muhammad said that the entire earth is raised up on the Yom Al-Qiyamah on the Day of Judgment and will bear witness and the Prophet Muhammad said that rocks will bear witness that trees will bear witness that rivers will bear witness against those who did harm to them without uh, just cause right Uh uh-huh there is like in the Jewish tradition yeah a woman is considered ritually impure during the menstrual cycle and she does not pray during that period right because that is a a cleansing time she does not pray during that period she's absolved from the prayer and there's nothing there's no stigma related to in fact the prophet muhammad because in like in the some of the orthodox jewish tradition the woman is you know the the man stays away yeah she's separate the prophet knew because there were jews living in medina and he wanted to break that tradition and it's recorded that he recited the Quran while on the lap of his wife Aisha while she was menstruating. And he was letting people know that there's nothing wrong with the woman during that time. It's, it's just a period of a personal purification and it does not extend beyond her. She can cook. like she, She's allowed to cook during that time. She's allowed to... In fact, even uh, uh, foreplay is allowed during that time between a male and a female. But the Prophet said, avoid what is between the belly button and the knee. In other words, don't, because that's a time that's prohibited for actual sexual intercourse. But the Prophet said that is a time when male and female could have um, uh, like foreplay, sexual foreplay, with the exclusion of intercourse only. So, any questions now, just about all that's transpired? Was there a number of uh, times and repetitions for the ablutions? Uh, good, yeah. Three is, is encouraged. One is what's ob- ob- obligatory, and three is encouraged. No more than three. It would be discouraged after. Uh uh-huh. Is there anything to the notion that uh, certain sects wash the hands from the hands to the elbow and others should No. One way. There's one way to do it, which is down like that. Mm-hmm. I and mean, pretty much all the schools are, are the same on the, the, the wudu and the prayer. The prayer, there's some difference, like Maliki. A school prays with the hands at the side, and also the Shia uh, pray with their hands at the side. The other schools uh, pray with the hands here or here, some up here. So you're going to get slight variations, but the basic movements are the same. And some will move their finger to concentrate in the last part of the prayer, and some won't. Do they do the left hand first right? hand, always right to left. In, in the Muslim tradition, left you know, it's cosmological, left. I mean, in Latin, sinistra is, is left, right? There's always this idea that left is kind of sinister. It's the bad side. Uh, in the Muslim tradition, it's not, it's not like that. There's not a stigma like that about left-hand. Like in, in Europe, there was a stigma related to being left-handed. And uh, people, I mean, my mother was, she went to Catholic schools. She was left-handed. She got the ruler, uh, until she learned to write with her right hand which now we know is actually uh, c- damages um, th- that's you know one of the things that pe- some people think are, are result in, in learning disabilities and things like that because there's a there's a confusion that takes place in the in the body as a result of that but in the Muslim tradition there's nothing there's no stigmatism related. like I'm left handed Omar ibn al-Khattab was left, he wrote with his left hand there's no stigmatism attached to that um, but People are, are supposed to eat with their right hand. The left hand is used for cleaning, um, like the urine and cleaning the feces, right? So the right hand is, that's why you would never shake with your left hand. You would always shake with your right hand. So in Muslim cultures, the right hand is very important. And one of the reasons that the thief loses the right hand is it's when they break the, you know, there's a deep breach of the social contract when a, a human being steals from another human being and there's a literally a severing from the, the, uh, the society that takes place. So to lose the right hand is a very traumatic uh, experience in the Muslim culture. Is there any linguistic parallel between, between the right hand, the word right, and the word law? As it is in the right hand? Absolutely, yeah. Right, yameen means, you know, uh, it's like an oath is called swearing, a yamin, right, I swear that this is true, you're swearing with the right, um, and also yumen is a good omen, and sham which is related to the left, is a bad omen, so there is a cosmology involved in it. And also the idea um, in classical cosmology, which is Indo-European as well as Chinese, uh, you know, the Chinese in the Chinese cosmology, the south is young, which is over, and the, the, the north is yin, which is under. The same in the Indic, uh, the Dravidian culture and the Indic cultures, that the, the word for south is in Sanskrit uh, relates to over or above, and the word for north is under. And classically, maps were generally put the south on the top. And you will notice out there that Aledrisi's map puts Africa on the top and Europe on the bottom. There was a switch with the European cartographers when they kind of realized that there's some philosophical implications here um, being under or inferior as opposed to being over and superior and they literally switched uh, the maps around but the, the the book that a lot of European cartography was based upon was the book of Roger which was done by Aledrisi for the Sicilian king um, of, uh, of Sicily Roger and he had his maps with the south on the top which is related to facing the east in the morning. So the back is called Gharb, or the unknown, which is west. The east is called the Mashriq, or facing the radiance of the sun. The uh, south is called the right, like Yemen means the right. It's also the southernmost place in the Arabian Peninsula. And Shamal is from north, which is from Shimal, which means left. So north is considered left to the, to the human body in terms of this is cosmological, in terms of cosmology. So the, the north would be under the, the south. And the Muslims traditionally did their astrolabes with the south uh, as, as the, it was the, the projection was from the south looking up uh, to the sky. Any other questions? Uh-huh. Uh, you said earlier that in uh, some countries or cultures it's uh, difficult for Muslims to be reflective about their religion. Can mm-hmm. you <coughs> some of the reasons why it's difficult? In well, because I think people in, in the Muslim culture it's just a given that you're right. You know, like it used to be that way in this culture. You know, it was just given. Christianity was true. Everything else is false. That, that's just a given of any culture that has a dominant religious teaching that still has power and influence. And certainly Islam is still in that position in the Muslim world where to question or to really think, why am I a Muslim? You know, other than the fact that I was born here, that most people won't come to that... Uh, there, would be, there, would be, there would be judgment. There would be social stigma, for one. But see, I don't even think that that should negate... Even if there was, it's still important to, to reflect and think. You know, I mean, you have always had uh, people within cultures that have, have questioned things. I mean, there were there were always people in the Christian tradition that remained Christians, but they could still challenge the culture. Sometimes they were burnt to the stake, other times they weren't. But the point is that there were people that would say, you know, is this right? Or Is what we're doing right? I mean, that's an important human question. And uh, this is just a lot of uh, non-reflective people. And then... I think there's a lot of encouragement uh, for, for the absence of reflection for social political reasons. You know, I mean, in this country, uh, you know, we're a country of entertainment. People know massive things about sports and basketball and baseball and football and adults that can give you brilliant analyses of, you know, uh, why this team's going to make it to the Super Bowl and have all their stats at hand, and they don't have a clue about the national debt or why we're paying over 50% of our tax dollar to interest on in our national debt or why our schools are, are literally crumbling before our eyes, why there's uh, children killing children. Why, you know, really, there, there's just not a lot of emphasis on analyzing, on thinking. on think. So, I, you know, we're as much... I think, you know, we... The Americans, we, you know, we tend to delude ourselves... Uh, often, I mean, you're all educated people, so it's probably not the case. But there are certainly a lot of people out there that really haven't given a lot of thought. Um, that they're, they're much more uh, obsessed with, uh, you know, the latest entertainment, or, uh, the, what the latest movie is out there, you know. The Romans controlled their societies with bread and circus, right? Bread, bread and circus. It's a very common political way of maintaining... A, What's a specific rationale behind the salvation of eating a pork? A pork? Okay, uh, rationale, there are two things in, in the Sharia uh, that are understood by the Muslims. One is that there are some things that, that we know why and there are other things that we don't. The things that we know why with absolute certainty are those things that we're told in the Quran or in the Hadith that that's why it was prohibited. For instance, in the Quran it says Do not go near sexual perversions Because they are foulness And they lead down a terrible road So illicit sexual relations The idea is that they will lead down a terrible road There's a hadith of the Prophet Muhammad That perversity will never manifest in a people Except they're afflicted with diseases and illnesses That were unknown to previous generations So the Muslims would see that You know that breaching sexual uh, laws that that are given by God from the Muslim perspective Result there are consequences in other words that the moral realm has laws That impact us at the biological at the psychosocial level just as there are physical laws of cause and effect and and things like that Right, so so Muslims see that morality is not this arbitrary thing that there is a reason right and, and this is the way the Muslims view it. And I, I think a lot of Christians have that feeling too. I mean, a lot of Christians point out that if you are uh, monogamous, uh, you will not. You know, if, if two people who are, are both virgins enter into a marital situation and do not uh, breach those boundaries, they do not. They're not susceptible to venereal diseases. It is a simple fact of uh, biology, right? So uh, that, that's at one level. Now, the other level is that there are things that we don't know why God has said don't do this. And the reason that the scholars say is that there are some things that he has not told us is because it's one, a test that will you do it even though your intellect is not fully capable of comprehending the wisdom behind it and and two, um, that uh, it's, it's an aspect of submission again. Now, the scholars have always encouraged seeking reasons, wisdoms to increase people's faith but never to say as an absolute this is why. Concerning pig, generally pig uh, has been considered an unclean animal. Um, it eats uh, unclean things. Um, its form is, is uh, it's an unclean uh, form. And, you know, I, uh, some modern Jews, like Reformed Jewish tradition... Some of them who've gone to very liberal positions have pointed out, you know, this was really for trichinosis and diseases that related. To, but now that we know scientifically, and they would actually consider it acceptable to eat pig, the Muslims would never go to that. Uh huh. Shellfish, shellfish is discouraged according to Imam Abu Hanifa, but it, the reason that it is not prohibited is because uh, there is a hadith of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, that what comes out of the sea is pure and halal for you. And, and that's where it comes from. But, but Abu Hanifa did consider it uh, makruh to eat shellfish that it, because it ate unclean things. And that was the reason that, that he gave. So that is a position, but it's not a dominant position. And again, one of the things that the Quran mentions is part of the Prophet's message was to lighten the load of the previous dispensations. So the, it, there are actually some lightening of loads concerning what was binding on the, on the Jewish tradition because they uh, the, from the point that it, it, people were getting weaker at maintaining uh, the guidelines of God. And so there was kind of making it easier for people for this last stage of, of human existence because people do not have the same spiritual capacities as the ancients did. Uh, so there's that idea as well. Any other questions about this? So we'll go on to the next um, the next pillar which is zakat the word zakat means it comes from a root word which means to purify and the idea is that it is a purification of your wealth everybody in accruing wealth will have some either clearly doubtful or even really doubtful uh, you know aspects to the accruement of wealth so the idea is That zakat is a way of purifying your wealth And the Prophet Muhammad Was prohibited The taking of zakat for his own family They cannot be recipients of zakat Bani Hashim The reason is Is that he said that Zakat is like <laughs> the, the feces of wealth. In other words, the body needs to let go of its impurities in, in order to maintain its purity. And zakat is seen as a letting go of one's wealth in order to purify and make the, 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 the wealth that it has grow, literally. Yeah, if, if how do they then turn that around? Um, um, the recipient who receives the wealth, for the person it is a purification. Yes. For the one receiving the wealth, it is a right. It's seen as a right. And so it changes perspective. There's a shift in perspective. In other words, the one receiving it is not receiving anything filthy. Right? It's a right. And it's encouraged when you give zakat to somebody to not tell them it's zakat. So that they don't feel to give it as a gift. So that they don't feel because some people have a pride. They don't want to feel like they're like a welfare type state that I'm. I need that It's encouraged. You don't have to tell them it's zakat. You uh, it's also encouraged to give it smiling with a you know as seeing that it's an honor. So the person giving it. These are in the books of fiqh related to giving zakat that you're supposed to give it in humility, not in arrogance. That you give it to the person, literally feeling like you're honored to do that thing. And the prophet said one of the signs of the end of time is people will consider zakat like a fine. You know, in other words, they wouldn't see it as an honor, but rather as like taxes nowadays. Right? Have to pay it. Clearly both parties involved both sides know kind of what's going on. I mean, don't they have an understanding of... I mean, like say it's I've given zakat many times in which the people had no idea that it was zakat. Oh really? Absolutely, many times. How would, like is there any example that you give? Like how? Well, Muslims, Muslims. I think you'd be really surprised uh, at you know the generosity of Muslims that are practicing to other Muslims. They're they're very generous. If if within a community, like in my community, for instance, we had a man who recently lost his job. And, uh, and I found out about it, and I knew that he was in a hard condition. I contacted a few people, and in one day we raised $4,000. Uh, and I gave that to that person, right, just to help him for the next couple months until he could uh, get a job again. And I didn't tell him. I said, this is a gift, you know. Now, there were people that gave it as zakat, but I, didn't, you know, I don't have to tell him it's zakat. Mm -hmm. There are times when you'll find things on your doorstep. That's true. You may find uh, a rack of lamb, you may find an envelope of money, and you don't know who. Very common in the Muslim community. There's definitely... uh, I think Muslims do still have a, a sense of taking care. Like Things like homelessness in the Muslim world, those are still real shocking. Like the other day we saw a man... In, and I was with Sheikh Abdullah and he didn't have a shirt on and he asked me first if he was crazy because in their country you would never not wear a shirt in public it would literally be for them it's a sign somebody was mad and, uh, and the same with shorts that's like that's something he hasn't I don't think he's quite grasped it yet just because their culture is still very very modest um, but we told him that he's probably homeless and he said what does that mean? And, and, you know, he didn't, literally didn't know what it meant. Because <laughs> in that country, you could build a, they just build like a, uh, uh, they take uh, tree limbs and, and the women will sew like uh, burlap saps together and make a little house. And you don't have to pay property tax and you don't have to, you know, you just set up shop. And he didn't have a concept of like being homeless. And, uh, and then he just said to me, with all of this, like, there's so much here. You know, because he's coming from a place where there's nothing. And he said, how is it that, like, somebody could be without a place to to sleep? With all... Like, he just... It was something that I don't think his intellect really could quite uh, grasp. Right? Very kind of interesting. Really interesting book to read about this is Winners and Losers in the New World Order by Jacques Attali. Right? He talks about this phenomenon of increasingly, uh, you know... People becoming accustomed to planetary boat people. That's what he calls them. Planetary boat people. Where you'll go to the ATM and, and the bum's there and we just become inured to it because uh, it just becomes more and more difficult for people to deal with. Them. Um, how is, it, is any, in the giving of the relationship whether the receiver is Muslim or not? The receiver, that's a good question. Let me tell you just, and, and I'm going to get to that. Let me tell you basically, zakat is a local tax. It is not meant to go outside of the community. The Prophet said, those closest to you are most worthy of your help. So the idea of acting locally is really important. That, you know, if, if, you're, if you're fighting for the rights of the Tibetans... You know, and your own community, there's people oppressed, the Muslims would see that as a kind of disconnection. It doesn't mean that you're not sympathetic with something happening over there, but the thing is you begin at home. You begin cleaning up your own home. So zakat goes back to the wealth of the local community. If there was no one in that community that is impoverished or needs zakat, then it will go outside of the community. And you first give to your relatives who are in need before you would give to strangers. Now, the recipients of zakat, there are eight categories mentioned in the Qur'an itself, and those are considered the only recipients of zakat. One of the only non-Muslim group are, are, are what are called mu'allifat قلوب, قُلُوبُهُمْ which are people who are very close to Islam. They're, they're very interested in Islam, they're close to Islam, those people uh, it's permissible to give them zakat money if they're not Muslim then you can you can donate money to them but you cannot give zakat zakat is the right of poor Muslims in other words the idea that you take care of your own before you go outside but traditionally the Muslims in, uh, in the early 19th century during a famine in, in France the Bay of, uh, of Tunis and Algeria sent um, wheat to, uh, to Europe to help uh, relieve the famine. So traditionally the Muslims did have a concept of helping uh, other peoples if they had a surplus. But first you help uh, the people within your community. And then also Jewish, there's a, a beautiful story of Sayyidina Omar because Jewish and Christian and non-Muslim peoples like Buddhists and others pay a tax to live under the Muslims. And... Um, Omar saw a a Jewish man begging, an old man. And he said, why is this man begging? And they said, he doesn't have any money. And he said, "Uh, we took money from him when he was young, so we should take care of him in his old age. And so he demanded that... Christian and Jews and other people, if they had no one within their community to take care of them, then there should be money taken out of the what's called the Bayt al-Mal or the collective bank of the Muslim government to help those people. And it's interesting that during the time of Umar bin Abd aziz in Damascus, the government actually paid for and supplied um, people, not dogs, but people to take care of blind people as an employment. Right, which is mentioned in the books. Uh, is there a certain percentage then? That they Good question. Like the, the, the percentage is there are, two, there are three types of zakat. Income tax is prohibited in Islam. You cannot tax people for income that they're using to live by. You can only tax them according to standing wealth that one year has accumulated. So if a year has passed and you still have the wealth That's what you pay zakat on. You don't pay zakat based on what you made that year. So if I made $50,000, but at the end of the year I have zero, which is the case of a lot of people in this country, right, and they actually have to borrow to pay the IRS, that, that, you do not, uh, pay any zakat. You pay zakat at the end of a lunar year. You pay zakat on what you have that a year has transpired with. And that, and you pay one fortieth. 2.5%. 2.5 percent. No, of the entire thing. So if I had forty dollars, I would pay one so, yes, so dollar. After, after the whole year. Yes. yes. Yeah, it's not a big, big amount. But if uh-huh, Go ahead. you, may, you may only need, let's say, uh, you know, a uh, six thousand dollar car to get around. And, uh, once in the, Right. You know, I mean, you, 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 will, you, may, you may only need, let's say, uh, you know, a $6,000 car to get around. But, but you buy a $100,000 one. Exactly. Okay. Um, Herb asked, a, I think, a good question. Where, where does want and need come into this? In other words, if I'm a wealthy person and I buy a car for $100,000, and I'm a poor person, I buy one for $500, does, is there, can I just spend my money on that? Yes. Wealthy people, their money is discretionary. It is highly discouraged to waste, and it is actually prohibited to be uh, grossly extravagant. But the Prophet Muhammad said, Allah loves to see the traces of His blessings on His creatures, and so it's encouraged for a wealthy person to dress not extravagantly. He should wear things in order to show the blessing on him. And it's you know, there's a beautiful book about called Envy Towards a Social Theory. Fascinating book about the, the, the disruptive aspects of envy in a culture, and uh, the one of the worst things in Islam is envy. It's literally considered one of the worst things. It's one of the seven deadly sins in the uh, in the Christian Catholic Church. And my father was Catholic, and he said that he's um, he's unfortunately familiar with about four of them. And uh, his friend told him, one's enough to kill you. <laughs> but envy is one of the seven deadly sins, right, in, in, our, in, in our Western tradition. In, in the Islamic tradition, it's also one of the real bad uh, things. And, and so the idea is that poor people should not envy rich people. It's, it's really considered a bad thing to envy rich people. Poor people should... Thank God. In fact, the Prophet Muhammad said, in terms of your worldly condition, always look to people below you. And in terms of your otherworldly condition, always look at people better than you. So in terms of righteousness, piety, look at people that are superior to you that you might never become deluded about yourself and you always want to improve. But in terms of the material world, look at people worse off than you so that you feel grateful for what you have. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called Envy Towards a Social Theory, and it's, it's a German author, and I can't remember his name right now. I actually just got the book a couple months ago, and so I don't have the author's name it. Mm-hmm. If um, there's no income and the cut is determined on something net. Um, yeah. It's like a capital gains tax, more. You know, it's like capital at the end of the year. Okay, does the zakat satisfy and fulfill the needs of the poor? Is it the poor? Is it there is a scholar in Qatar who has proven that if zakat was paid in the Muslim world, there would be a gross surplus of wealth today. It's very interesting because there's also zakat of agriculture and livestock. So, uh, agriculture has one-fifth. Now the World Bank estimated that if 2% of the world's uh, agricultural uh, of the world's agricultural crops were were taxed, 2% that there would be no hunger anywhere. Now Islam says 5% for irrigation that you did yourself, 10% for agriculture based on natural irrigation like rain and things like that. So if you didn't work, you pay more. If you did irrigation, you pay less. So 10% of wheat, corn, um, barley, all of these grains is taxed and and it's supposed to be given and distributed to the poor. Also livestock. So uh, for every uh, five camels, one sheep is given, like that, right? 30 (coughs) 30 cows, a calf, 40, uh uh-huh. Question: um, You were talking about the uh, lifestyle. I was mean, just thinking about, uh, um, about Saudi Arabia. You know, when all the pilgrims, you know, when they, all these people come and they wish to make sacrifices, right? How do they deal it? They they can them and they send them around to poor people around the world. That's what they do now. The the meat that's sacrificed during the Hajj. And no, I, like I didn't sacrifice. You don't have to sacrifice if you made a, uh, a... There's three ways of making hajj. And I made it the way that the Prophet ﷺ made it, where you, it's not obligatory to sacrifice. You can if you want to. I did not sacrifice. Um, but if you do sacrifice, the meat can either be eaten there, it's, it's encouraged to distribute it amongst the poor. And the Eid, the reason it's encouraged to sacrifice during the Eid, traditionally, was that poor people generally did not eat meat very often. <laughs> And so the idea was on the Eid, it was a time when you brought meat to the poor people to give them meat. Um, Now meat is becoming more increasingly uh, cheaper. And so you're finding people are are meat eaters all over. Um, Sayyidina Omar said, beware of meat because it has the addiction of wine. And he also said to one man who used to eat meat every day, every time you desire meat, you buy it? And he said, yes. And he said, I'm afraid you're going to be from the people who lose all their good deeds in this world. Uh, In other words, that you enjoy the world so much that you can't show the right right gratitude. So it was not encouraged to eat meat all the time. And now Muslims have become heavy meat eaters. But traditionally, most Muslim cultures were really more semi-vegetarian cultures. It's kind of more of a recent phenomenon, the heavy meat. And beef is very new in the Muslim world. Traditionally, Muslims were not beef eaters. They were goat and sheep. Uh-huh. In Muslim culture, where particularly in the 20th century, where there's been, you say, oil and wealth, how is that affected the economy? Is it causing problems to be That's country? a really good point. Yeah, there is a lot of problems. There's a lot of resentment, there's a lot of envy, things like that. But technically, um, buried wealth, there's different opinions about it. Most of the scholars say that it goes to the Muslim Uh, collective bank, what's called the Beit al-Mal, and it should be used to develop uh, the Muslim communities, to help the poor, to build schools, to do these things. It should not be personal wealth. Some say that, no, 20%, uh, it should be taxed 20%, and then the land of the people that it was found on, they're the ones that uh, benefit from it. So there are some differences of opinion, um, but there's definitely, in many of the countries where there's been natural resources uh, discovered, and the Muslims do have a lot of natural resources in the Muslim communities. Um, there's just been a gross um, expropriation of the wealth and exploitation of it, which is very unfortunate. And there's also been a lot of outside uh, influences. I mean, we know when Mossaddaq, who was the prime minister of Iran, uh, wanted to nationalize the oil, um, you know, there was a CIA coup that, that, that ousted him. So there's hands outside that are also impacting very seriously how the wealth is being used. Um, people, if you know about petrodollars, then you know the fact that the vast majority of petrol wealth is literally being supplanted uh, and, and invested in Western banks, and the Western banks, in turn, are using that to finance a lot of the projects in the, in the quote-unquote third world, which end up causing major problems because of interest payment and things like that. So, very complicated uh, world conditions but, but I think they're really worthwhile bringing up to your students you know cuz we have to as communities we just have to start thinking about this stuff you know we're just we're so marginalized from uh from these uh, dialogues and I think just normal people should should be participating in in trying to understand what's going on why you know why why are uh countries like Mexico you know paying these massive interests to you know there's more interest now coming out of the third world than there is aid going into it so there's a lot of very serious contradictions going on. And then a lot of the massive projects that are being developed, the World Bank and the IMF, encouraging these gross uh, projects, the the dam now in China and, and uh, Brazil and these type of things that really, if you read somebody like Suzanne George, uh, really worth reading. Fate worse than debt, ill fares the land, how the other side dies. Um, she worked for the World Bank and and... Then kind of reneged and realized that she felt that they were doing a lot more harm than, than good. And she's written some really, really worthwhile critiques. Uh, and not from a kind of conspiratorial type, uh, just really kind of analyzing the thing. I think in, in ver- Suzanne George, she, she, she's, she works now, the, I think she's supported by the Catholic uh, Church, actually, one of their organizations. Uh-huh. Recipients. Poor people. By definition, there are two types of poor people. One is called miskin, and the other is called fakir in the Quran. The miskeen is the one who doesn't even have a day's worth of uh, of their livelihood. The poor one is who, of oh, somebody who does not have a year's s- supply. They do not have enough money to get through a year. And they are accepted as a recipient uh, for... for, for, deserving for, and deserving for to yeah, that's a good point. Um, if the person is known to use things, like if they're alcoholic or known to do things, then, yeah, you should not support people that you know the money is going to go uh, and there are more worthy people for it. That, that is encouraged to look for the, the more worthy um, people. And then you have the people who collect it. So there is a portion of it taken out to employ the zakat collectors. And then you have indebted people. People who are in debt. And that is a type of debt as long as it was not accrued through wrong actions like gambling. And it is a debt in which they're in serious trouble. The debt has reached a level where the socially they're, they're really being jeopardized. Um, and then you have the... And also uh, indentured servants. People who bonds people. Because in Islam, traditionally, although this doesn't exist anymore in the Muslim world, traditionally there were people who were bonds people that were under the yoke of somebody. And those people in Sharia, if they desire to be freed from that uh, yoke then they have a right to zakat, to pay off uh, their, uh, whatever their worth is, right? And, and so that's a group. And then also the... Um, so that's five. And then you have um, the... And then you have people, the Ibn Sabil, who is somebody who's traveling... And this is also pre-ATM because he can be a wealthy person as well. So it's somebody who's traveling and they were robbed and they're far away from their home and they don't have access. And it still happens because ATM isn't, right? 80% of the world still doesn't have um, telephones, (laughs) by the way, right? So um, here we forget about that, right? But uh, it's, it's for somebody who was traveling and they lost their wealth. Those people are asked, uh, you know it's, they're permitted to get the uh, to receive the zakat and then for people who are called which are either near Islam or they have just come into Islam and you can give them zakat as a way of binding their hearts to the community and then the last group is which are people who are defending uh, the homelands so anybody who is uh is defending like jihad like the Bosnians when they were fighting many people sent their zakat to Bosnia uh, or Afghanistan for instance right and there are many people I think that support the Palestinians uh, you know viewing that as a valid uh, you know struggle things like that so that that's basically the uh, those are the recipients according to the Quran I would think that the answer to this would be no, but if you're an American Muslim and you're paying 35% income tax, uh, you also pay 2.5% wealth tax? Absolutely. In fact, more so. Some of the scholars have said if you're giving 35% to you know, the American uh, government, which is using a lot of it for things that... You've got that you should yeah. probably give 35, right. another 35% right. just to just to counterbalance and then pay Zakat like on top of that. <laughs> a lot of Muslims have a lot of cognitive dissonance about taxes in this country. A lot, particularly immigrants who, you know, their their countries are, you know, there's just a lot of problems going on and, and they feel just, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there, you know, because of such a huge portion of our taxes go to... Military, you know, I think what 54% is still allotted to uh, defense and military budgets and things like that. I mean, what are we? What's education? 17%? Is it even? No, I think it's what 17%. It's about 17%, right? So, but again, it's if you're in a country, you have to follow the laws of the land. So it's actually prohibited if you come into a country by sharia even though the laws are against Islam you either have to make hijrah or you have to follow those laws it is prohibited like it would be prohibited for a Muslim to uh, cheat on the income tax given that that is a law in this country they would either have to leave or they would have to pay it because the conditions of coming into the country one of the conditions is that you'll obey the laws of the land and the Prophet said uh, the Quran says that fulfill the trust that you have given to its people. So when a person comes into this country with a, you know, a visa or a green card or, and it says you're expected to obey the laws of the land, then you are expected to. So it's actually a breach of, of Islam not to. And, and that is something, unfortunately, some Muslims aren't aware of. You know. Uh huh. I heard two things. One that it cannot be for your own family, and the other it's supposed to be for No, it can't be for your own family if it's like a trick. In other words, I give my wife my zakat, she gives me her zakat. No, it's to your family if they're poor and worthy. Then they should be the first recipients. Now, the government does have the right. If there was a valid Islamic government, they do have the right to collect zakat that is a right of the government and the government would distribute it. In the absence of government uh, gathering of zakat, then it is an individual responsibility on the Muslims. How do you determine what is a valid um, government? It, well, any government that has, uh, that, that has the authority is, is considered you know, valid. If there's like, it's prohibited to, uh, to go out against the government. Like revolution is actually prohibited in Islam in the sunni tradition not in the shia tradition they do have a difference i mean that is an important distinction the sunni tradition believes that they have a right to fight and oppose an unjust government whereas the sun the shia the sunni tradition says that the people should be patient and ask god to change the conditions and rectify themselves but they should not actually physically bear arms because that would lead to a greater uh, tribulation than the actual injustice which is bloodshed amongst uh, people. So in the Sunni tradition it's actually uh, like what's happening in Algeria for instance. That's that's prohibited uh, by Islamic law to do that and that is the classical Islamic view and the group that goes out are called khawarij which are the seceders and you can find them historically. There's always been uh, groups that have said that. But tr- the traditional Sunni position is that you cannot go against the, uh, the ruler. Any other questions? Absolutely. I mean, that's the ideal. But even if they're not implementing the Quran and they don't openly say that they don't believe in it, they're still considered uh, the legitimate government. So they would then have the right to collect these. Yes, and and this could be in lieu of uh, a welfare department or something like this. Zakat—that's the whole point of zakat. Right. Yeah, it's to it's to help the poor people. It's a right of the poor people. And it's interesting because the Prophet said, "Take the your." from your wealthy, the zakat, and return it to the poor people. So it's almost like, you know, people get rich off poor people because the vast majority of the world's population is poor. We forget that. You know, we really do have a very high living standard. But the vast majority of the world's population are poor people. And the wealth, even America's wealth, is largely dependent on a lot of, uh, you know, of wealth from other countries. You know, we have very cheap oil in this country. I mean, for example, for a liter of Coke is about how much? I don't buy Coke, but what are you paying there? A dollar. A dollar? You know, you're paying more for sugar and water than you are for a liter of oil. Right? And sugar and water are pretty much inexhaustible resources relatively. I know there's some problems now with water and things like that. Whereas oil, you know, you're dealing with an exhaustible resource. It's grossly underpriced. Oil is grossly underpriced. I mean, we you know, we're paying a dollar forty for a gallon of gas, it'll take you thirty miles, forty miles, and you pay, you know, relatively the same amount for a bottle of sugar water that's gonna rot your teeth and give you diabetes, you know. So it's really interesting that that oil is so cheap and uh, I mean, oil should probably be around, what's that? I would saying four or five. At least. I mean, my father now, that's what he's in. You know, he left teaching and got in because my grandfather was in the oil business and he got in it through, when he married my mother, he uh, he started working in that and uh, he's always going on about it, drives him crazy because, uh, you know, he said it should be around at least 50 a barrel or something like that. It's just grossly underpriced. So, but we have the luxury of having very cheap oil and the majors they it's hard to believe but they actually maintain those those low prices you know so and the the exploration in this country is it's unbelievable how difficult it is to explore oil in this country there are still lots of you know oil reserves in this country and most of the old uh oil fields of the 1930s and 40s uh, were very shallow you know they didn't have the technology to go down you know several miles they just would go down very short amounts but uh oil is it's really discouraged to explore oil in this country and and most of the majors are just not interested anymore you know because there's you know they're making so much money off uh it's yeah it's more expensive it's much cheaper to uh to buy underpriced oil from the Arabian Peninsula than it is to uh, you know to uh, explore and, and exploit the resources here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really want to cover the last couple points here, but let me clarify one thing. So Muslims in the United States would pay obviously the federal and state city income property taxes. Yeah. Although so they owe in addition to that they pay. They percent. would. Yes and many of them do and many of them don't there are many muslims that don't pay zakat anymore but there are many that still do because now it's just a, it's an individual thing there are many muslims in my uh, area there are uh, you know about 70,000 muslims estimated in the greater bay area maybe from that 70,000 8 000 to 10,000 are actually praying so and from that eight to ten thousand of those praying, there might not be some that are paying zakat. So it's it's now become more of an individual. I mean, do you think that's a fair estimate, Suleiman? Because you're more familiar with those type numbers than I am. Isn't it, I I reason it's about ten percent generally uh, within any given population in this country. Do you think that's accurate? So, and Muslims often fall in very high tax brackets in this country because there's a lot of physicians, there's a lot of engineers, so they're paying a lot of taxes, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, in this category, in this category, is that we you discuss the idea of lending interest and paying That's another, I was going to do that with the Sharia, but I can bring that up now, the idea of just... Um, yeah, let me just get through that. Go ahead. Um, okay. Uh, no, lost well, it. I'll come back. Okay, just when it comes back. Um, fasting is the next pillar, and that's one lunar year out of the month called Ramadan. It will change. Now, it's interesting also to note that the lunar year is basically, uh, it will make a full cycle. In other words, it will, uh, it will go through the, the solar year one time every th- 32 years. So if a person's average lifespan uh, is somewhere around 65, um, now it's a little higher in this country, but um, you're going to be fasting two times in all the months of the year. So Ramadan will be in December twice in your lifetime. Now, it's very interesting because that's related to a kind of justice as well because of the different places on the earth. You will find that Ramadan, for some people, it's, it's very long at a given part of the year and then other people's, it's incredibly short. So, in England, there are periods where it will be very long and then there are periods where it will only be like you know, f- you know seven hours, very short fast. And then in the middle part of the world, it's actually quite reasonable. It's usually around 12 hours. If you're near the equator. So, the you know, in the winter they're very short days. In the summer they're long days. Fasting is basically abstaining during the lunar month of Ramadan from uh, food, from drink, uh, including cigarettes, um, from taking anything past the throat. You can rinse your mouth and things, but anything past the throat breaks the fast. And from sexual... Uh, both foreplay and uh, actual full intercourse. So, during the, the month of Ramadan, those things the Muslim is commanded to abstain from, both men and women. In my school, which is the Maliki school, it's not encouraged for children to fast. It's actually discouraged. And uh, if they get older, like around 10, 11, then uh, they can fast if they want to. But it's not considered something that you should force a child to do. So... Um, any questions? Fasting is pretty straightforward. Is there any? Mm-hmm. There has been some students at my school who, during Ramadan, even though they may have been sick and should have been drinking fluids, didn't. Muslims you'll generally find are pretty rigid about that. And that has to do sometimes with not fully understanding the tradition. Because if you're diabetic, it's actually prohibited to fast. If a physician thinks that it's harmful, it is prohibited by Sharia. And you would actually be doing something haram in the teaching you would be doing something prohibited because preservation of the self is the second after preservation of religion it is the second highest priority in the sharia Um old people if it's difficult for them if they're able to but it's hard they they have a choice people who are traveling have a choice but if it's hard they, they're encouraged to break it and if it's extremely hard undo, then they have to break it um, a pregnant woman a nursing woman and she can either decide for herself or get a doctor's opinion and the doctor's opinion would be binding on her anyone who has a physical illness like diabetes Or they have to take medicines regularly throughout the day. Now, some scholars have permitted like uh, asthma inhalers, inhalants, that that does not break the fast. There's a difference of opinion about that, but some my sheikh gave a religious opinion that it did not break the fast because it went into the lungs. And smoking broke the fast because it was unnecessary, right? Which a smoker would definitely disagree with that. (laughs) What's that? good point yeah somebody who was uh, fighting you know and they needed their physical strength now you know Hakim Alijawan um, it was kind of became national news because he was fasting during the playoffs and uh, you know it would be prohibited really for him to do that to break his fast you know because it's a sport right. that's why If it was a valid job, like it is permissible, for instance, if there was a harvest that had to be done and they could not do it uh, fasting uh, and they would lose the crop or something like that because of that, some type of situation like that, then it would be actually permissible to do it. I mean, What are the hours of fasting? Fasting goes from the Fajr prayer, which is dawn, until the sunset prayer. And then you can eat, sleep, uh, and well, you do sleep in the daytime anyway. But you can eat, drink, and have uh, relations with uh, your your husband or your wife. It's during the di- the nighttime. Go we'll getting married during Ramadan? during Ramadan. You could absolutely. Prophet got married in Ramadan. Ramadan creates history. The month predates Islam, not the fasting. But the, months, the lunar months of Islam predated Islam. What predates Islam is the, uh, the rites around the Kaaba. During Ramadan. No. Ramadan does not predate Islam. Fasting in Ramadan is second year hijrah. Before that the Arabs did not fast and the Quran says fasting has been prescribed upon you just as it was prescribed upon the people before you in order that you might learn discipline so it's actually considered a spiritual practice to discipline yourself now if you think about it people who abstain from uh, for a whole month of not eating during the daylight hours that is it's you know it gives the body there is a, a very strong discipline that goes into that it's prohibited to backbite at any time Whether it's a Muslim or a non-Muslim You are not supposed to talk bad about um, people It is prohibited to, um, to uh, lie It's disencouraged to talk a lot Empty talk In Islam It's just not something encouraged There's a tradition the Prophet said كَرِحَ <coughs> اللَّهُ Allah dislikes empty gossip You know Thoreau said that gossip was good in homeopathic doses. <laughs> to head back to a question I'd forgotten earlier, you said if there were a legitimate Muslim government, then it would have to be applied. Um, and I know that a lot of Muslims think there is none, but there are governments that claim they are. Right. Correct? Have any of the current governments that claim to be Muslim governments Starting to there's government. there's zakat there's some zakat absolutely in in the Emirates in Arabia uh-huh. in different places they do have zakat and people can pay it through government uh, it can or not. no they don't have to okay yeah okay. but it's for but, but with, a, with a legitimate Islamic government it would be allowed for that government to do, to do it yes yeah to require mm-hmm. okay. but nowhere requires it no. okay Could you explain why Ramadan is when that angel gave Okay, good point. Thank you. Yeah. It's, uh-huh. It's Ramadan, the reason Ramadan uh, is the month of fasting is generally uh, it says that this Quran was revealed in 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 you know, a blessed time. Shahar Ramadan Qur'an. The month of Ramadan is the month in which the Quran was revealed. Now the Muslim belief is that the Quran came to the first heaven, which is called Sama'ud Dunya, to to a place called Baytul Izza, the abode of dignity or exaltation. And then from and that happened in Ramadan, and the beginning of the revelation began on the twenty seventh of Ramadan. And then over a twenty three year period it is being revealed to the Prophet. And in Ramadan specifically, the Prophet said that that Jibreel used to go through the Quran every month with him but in Ramadan uh, he used to go through it every year with him in Ramadan the entire Quran and then in the last Ramadan of his life he went through it two times and he knew that that was his last year so the Ramadan is considered a very blessed time for Muslims and traditionally it's encouraged for people to go out and see the new moon and and uh, you know, the, the Muslims uh, traditionally went out sighted the new moon, and you would hear a lot of shouts of joy, Allahu Akbar, um, in the Muslim cities that go up on the rooftops and things. Is mm-hmm. yes, there, therefore, a connection between the crescent and the star? The crescent moon, interestingly enough, is a much later um, It was the, the Mamluks that actually introduced the crescent moon. And I think it actually, you know, it was a symbol of uh, some of the ancient moon cults. Um, It's become to be adopted as a a symbol, but it's in no way an authoritative symbol of Islam Um, I mean Muslims, it's like an urf, what they call custom And the Prophet said, whatever the Muslims see as good, um, is good with Allah So there's an idea that the crescent moon has kind of been accepted by the Muslims as, But it's not from the Prophet Muhammad It's an interesting thing about Islam is the absence of symbols, like icons and things. There, there really is. You go into a mosque, and calligraphy is pretty much, and then you have a lot of geometric, uh, which is later. But, but there is a, there's a real, uh, there's just an absence of a type of icon, iconography or something like that. I've heard it said that the Shahada is a symbol for Islam. somebody said that? Um, it's, it's traditionally the prophet did put it on his flag. Yeah. And so uh, it, it traditionally has been like... But again, when I mean symbol, I mean more like an abstract, not so much language. Language is symbols, obviously. But I, I mean like a cross or the Star of David or uh, the, the Om symbol statues. You know, in, in traditions you have a lot of symbols. Like Hindu tradition has many, many symbols. Um, you know, Christians have the Stations of the Cross in a lot of Catholic churches, you'll, you'll see those type of things. So, finally, uh, Hajj. Now, just about the fasting, I would say that traditionally the Muslims viewed fasting as um, a time of discipline. You should control your talk, your speech.